2 Samuel chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. After this, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them, and, took, and, took, and David took Metheg Amma out of the hand of the Philistines. And he defeated Moab, and he measured them with a line, making them lie down on the ground. Two lines he measured to be put to death, and one line to be spared. And the Moabites became servants to David and brought tribute. David also defeated Hadad and Ezer, the son of Rahab, king of Zobah, as he went to restore his power at the river Euphrates. And David took from him 1,700 horsemen and 20,000 foot soldiers. And David hamstrung all the chariot horses, but left enough for 100 chariots. And when the Syrians of Damascus came to help Hadad Ezer, king of Zobah, David struck down 22,000 men of the Syrians. Then David put garrisons in Aram of Damascus, and the Syrians became servants to David and brought tribute. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. And David took the shields of gold that were carried by the servants of Hadad Ezer and brought them to Jerusalem. And from Beda and from Barathea, cities of Hadad Ezer, King David took very much bronze. When Toy, king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated the whole army of Hadad Ezer, Toy sent his son Jeram to King David and to ask about his health and to bless him because he had fought against Hadad Ezer and defeated him. For Hadad Ezer had often been at war with Toy. And Jerom brought with him articles of silver, of gold, and of bronze. There also David King, King David dedicated to the Lord, together with the silver and gold that he had dedicated from all the nations he subdued. From Edom, Moab, the Ammonites, the Philistines, Amalek, and from the spoil of Hadad Ezer, the son of Jerahab, king of Zobah. And David made a name for himself when he returned from striking down 18,000 18, Edomites in the Valley of Salt. Then he put garrisons in Edom. Throughout all Edom he put garrisons. And all the Edomites became David's servants, and the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. Father, we acknowledge your goodness to us. Father, we recognize apart from you, there's nothing good in us. Lord, we are prone to wonder, prone to leave the God that I supposedly love. And Lord, I confess this morning I love you less than I, than I should. You want us to love you with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. And Father, we fail miserably. We're thankful for your grace and your mercy that reaches down to us. And we're thankful for Jesus and his death on the cross. Because of his sacrifice and his atoning sacrifice, we can approach you, not just approach you timidly, but we approach you boldly because of what Christ has done for us. And Lord, we, we acknowledge that we come to you solely because of grace and mercy. We come by faith, trusting Jesus' work on the cross as our own. It's because of what He's done for us that we can approach you and call you Father. We confess as a church that we're needy people and we're thankful for the, the worship leaders, for the folks who've put in time to lead us in song and singing true songs. Lord, what a blessing. I, I hope and pray that this week that we have those songs in our mind and our heart as we sing them out to you and to one another. Lord, we recognize today that there are people that want to be here that can't be here for shut-ins. Aunt Glenda's in the hospital. Some are sick at home. Some have sick children they're caring for. And we just pray that you would be gracious to them, that you would pour out your mercy and by your Holy Spirit draw them to you even now. They would sense your presence and your love. Father, as we come as sinful people, we ask that you would help us illumine our minds open our ears to hear, our eyes to see truth in your word that we could leave here empowered to give you glory with our lives. Bless us and help us in Jesus' name. Amen. Seth and I, my son, 
we like to watch sports documentaries, and we'll look at those on YouTube. We watch those together. That's something he and I kind of do um, to bond, I guess. We like these documentaries like it's uh, Football Life or 30 for 30. And they usually, these documentaries usually say something to the effect of this ball player is, or if not the best, one of the best players to ever play this position. And what do they do? They immediately show footage of the player proving their point. Well, God, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has promised David that he would be king. He sent his prophet, Samuel, way back in 1 Samuel chapter 16, to anoint David. And it took him a while. He was a shepherd boy. It took him a while to get to, from the pasture to the throne. But we're now in, in 2 Samuel chapter 8. And so it's taken a while. But David has been anointed king. And in chapter 7, we see David in Jerusalem, the city of David. He's now settled in a home. He is there with the Ark of the Covenant. And all is well. And God makes a promise to David in chapter 7. Look at chapter 7, verse 8 through 13. Let's read that together real quickly. Just to kind of help us where we are in context. Chapter 7, verse 8. Now therefore, in God speaking to David through his prophet Nathan, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place, and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Look down in verse 16. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And so what does God promise David? He's made a covenant with David, the Davidic covenant. He's promised that he'll be great. He'll have a great name. You'll be like one of the great ones. He says you'll have land. Israel will have a land to be their own. They'll be at peace. The enemies will be at bay, and you'll have an eternal, eternal dynasty. you have one of your descendants to be on the throne forever and ever and ever. That's the promises made to David. And just like those documentaries that Seth and I watch, when they tell us these players are one of the greatest of all time, then show us these highlights to back up their claims. Well, David has just been promised great things. And we expect to see some progress toward attaining all those blessings. And that's what we get in chapters 8 through 10 of 2 Samuel. Some say this is the high point of David's reign as king. It's the pinnacle. Because next week we'll get to chapter 11 as the crowd boos, right? Boo! Because that's when we get to Bathsheba and his incident with her. But a couple points today that I'll point out. Hunter's already read part of chapter, most of chapter 8 for us, but two points. The first point that I want to make this morning is the Lord gave David victory wherever he went. We're going to look at chapter 8 and chapter 10. 
Now that point is right from the text in chapter 8, verses 6 and 14. Then David put garrisons in Aram of Damascus, and the Assyrians became servants of David and brought tribute, and the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. And then again in verse 14, and the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. Now, Methagama was the capital city, the hub of Philistia. The name of the city means the bridle of the mother city. Now, what a bridle is in the management of a horse, that was what Methagama uh, was to Philistia. So David, what he did is he subdued this metropolis, this great city, and the whole land was in his power. It's like if you're going to whoop a, a group of boys, you find the, the one who's the bully, who thinks he's the toughest. You whip him and you got everybody else bluffed, right? You got everybody else defeated. So that's what David did. He, he took this city. And in verse 2, he defeated the Moabites. And it says that he took them prisoners of war. And he spared. He didn't kill all of them, right? He took every third one and spared their lives so they could be subject to him and they could bring him tribute. Verse 3 and 4, in the west, the Philistines were defeated, then the Moabites in the east, and to the north and northeast, you have this Hadadezer, as well as the Assyrians. And verse 4 tells us that David, he kept a hundred chariots. And he only kept a hundred chariots because keeping all the chariots were useless because in Israel it's, it's hilly terrain. And you can't, you can't ride a chariot in hilly terrain, right? But then the mention of the river Euphrates, I, for, I don't know for you, but for me, it reminded me of the the promised Abraham in Genesis chapter 15. The Abrahamic covenant in verse 18 through 20 says, On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Gergesites, and the Jebusites. So this is the promise from Abraham that he would have these lands. Now, during the time of the judges, much of the land that God had promised Israel had been lost. And so what David is doing now is he's regaining the land and he's putting bases there to ensure they keep it. When the Assyrians came to Hadadezer's aid, they brought 22,000 of their soldiers and 22,000 of their soldiers were killed. And a garrison was installed. That word garrison, just think of Navy base. We're close to Millington. We can relate to that better. But that's, in, in essence, what it was. It would set up these garrisons to keep the people under control, but also it was a good place where you could come and pay your taxes to the king. And they did pay tribute to David. David didn't kill all of the prisoners all of the time, but he would allow them to return to work so they could pay him taxes to pay him tribute. In verse 13 and 14 of chapter 8, to the south, you have the Edomites. So you're going west, you're going east, you're going north, and now you're going south. The kingdom of God is expanding under David's rule as David is given victory after victory after victory. Now David was a psalmist as well. We know that to be true. And it's helpful sometimes if you can find psalms that he writes during this period of time. And so Psalm 60, David writes during... His time, uh, chapter about the time, same time as chapter 8 was, was taking place. And he describes the people in Psalm 60, he describes the people that he's conquered. And then the last two verses of Psalm 60, it says, O grant us help 
against the foe, for vain is the salvation of man. With God we shall do valiantly. It is He who will tread down our foes. So who is responsible for all of these victories? Is it David? No, it's God. And so David understands that. And it's in verse 4, he hamstrings the horses. And what that means is that the hamstrings, you know, your muscles in the back of your leg, what he does, he cuts those hamstrings and the horses. It's kind of the equivalent of us uh, disabling tanks in warfare today. What does he do? He, he disables all those horses so the enemy can't use them. But also, also, so that Israel wouldn't depend on them. You remember time and time again, David is, is, is told not to, not to count his army, not to take a census of his army. Because the Lord says, you don't need to worry about how big your army is, you just need to trust me, I'll take care of you. And so he doesn't want Israel to begin to, to trust in their weapons, in their artillery, in their might in regard to horses and how many soldiers they have. In fact, Psalm chapter 20, verse 6 and 7, David wrote this psalm. He says, Now I know that the Lord saves His anointed. He will answer him from His holy heaven and with the saving might of His right hand. Some trust in chariots, some trust in horses. But not David. But we trust in the name of the Lord our God. So David is trusting in the Lord, knowing the Lord's going to give him victory. And up to this point, guess what? David is the undisputed champion of the world. He is undefeated. Now let's look at chapter 10. We'll come back to chapter 9 in just a moment. Chapter 10, David wanted to, to be kind to Hanun, who, is, who has succeeded his father. His father was the king of the Ammonites. And David and, and Nahash were loyal to one another. They were allies. And they helped one another. And they got along. And David wanted to offer his condolences to the new king, to Hanun, after the death of his father. And so what did David do? We don't have time to read all that. I just want to tell you the story. You can go back and read that later. But David sent service to Hanun. And Hanun's princes, those young fellows there that, that spent a lot of time around his court, they didn't trust David nor his servants. And they persuaded Hanun to be suspicious as well. And it's really interesting. You read this story. Who does it remind us of? Students? Where are the students at? They're scattered out. Who does that remind you of? Remind you of anybody? Reminds me of Rehoboam. Remember Rehoboam? He wouldn't listen to the wise, the elders of Israel, but he listened to all his, his punk buddies, right? And that's how the kingdom was split. Now you see Hanun doing the same thing. He listens to his buddies. And so what did he do? He was suspicious of these servants who came to bring gifts and, and, and get, pay their respects, give their condolences to this king who's lost his father. And so what this new king did is he wanted to humiliate these servants. And so what would they do? You look around and try to find somebody that's got a beard. Well, they shaved the beard off, but the problem is they didn't shave all of it off. They just shaved half of it. And they didn't give them a razor to finish the other half. And then what else, the, the, the next thing they did is, is they cut up their pants. So they were showing off their manhood to everybody. And so they sent them packing, walking back down the road home with half a beard and no britches. Of course, what do you think David here, he's trying to pay his respects, he hears about that, and what do you think he, d he does? He decides to get some retribution. And so he mounts up his troops, and he gets ready to go to war. And that's exactly what he did. 
Joab, his commander-in-chief, his commander of his army, was sent out to get revenge. In verse 6-8 through eight of chapter 10, the Ammonites, they hear of David. David's mad. And so they hire some Assyrians to come and help them and, and, and aid them. And let's read chapter 10, verse 11-14. through 14. Joab, David's commander, went to battle and he surrounded. Okay, look at chapter 10, verse 11-14. through 14. And he said, if the, Joab says, If the Assyrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the Ammonites are too strong for you, then I will come and help you. Be of a good courage and let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what seems good to him. So Joab and the people who were with him drew near to battle against the Syrians and they fled before him. And when the Ammonites saw that the Syrians fled, they likewise fled before Abisha and entered the city. Then Joab returned from fighting against the Ammonites and came to Jerusalem. So they were surrounded and defeat seemed imminent, but God was on David's side and gave him victory. He still is the undefeated, undisputed heavyweight champion of the world. So the outcome of all of David's activities in chapter 8 and chapter 10 is that he defeats and subjects all his enemies. And he sets up garrisons. These bases are now found among the neighboring nations, whereas foreign garrisons had once been found in Israel. So with these garrisons, the enemies will no longer be able to resist, harass, or oppress Israel for some time. And it means that there will be peace in the land just as God promised. We'll look back in chapter 8. Look back in chapter 8, verses 9 through 12. Hunter read this for us. Toy, king of Hamath. Notice the wisdom of Toy. He heard that David had defeated the whole army of Hadadezer, so what did he do? He sent his son, Joram, to King David to bless him, to bring him gifts. What did David do in verse 11? He took those things and he dedicated those to the Lord together with the silver and gold that he dedicated from all the nations he subdued. So Toy, what does he do? He knew he couldn't defeat David and they were allies, but he knew he couldn't defeat them and so what did he do? He joined them. In fact, that's what we should do as, as well. Think about David. He's the anointed one, the Messiah here in the Old Testament. He's the anointed king, God's king. But what does David do? We know David points us to another, to a Messiah that's to come, and his name is Jesus. And unlike David, this Jesus is the Messiah, the one true Messiah who is sinless and perfect and holy in every way. And just like Toy knew he couldn't beat David, so he joined him. We have to understand we can't beat Jesus either. See, one day, Jesus, who lived this, on this earth 2,000 years ago, who died, made atonement for sinful man, he was buried, was resurrected, then he, 40 some odd days later, he ascended into heaven. But one day, Jesus is going to return. And when he returns, he's going to gather together all those who have paid tribute to him. He's going to gather those to himself. That's the church. And the Lord is going to judge all those who oppose him. And since Jesus knows all things and is all-powerful, he's omniscient, he's omnipotent, no one's going to escape his wrath. You can't beat him, 
sinner, so why don't you repent and join them? Jesus is coming back. We see here in chapter 8 and chapter 10, God giving victory after victory to David. The second thing we see in this text in chapter 9 here is because we have received mercy, we should be merciful. Now this is the story of Mephibosheth. Now, pagan kings, when they came to the throne, remember David just was just taking his place as king of a united Israel. One of the first matters of business that pagan kings would do when they took the throne is they would eradicate anyone who would oppose or challenge them. And those that they didn't kill, what they would do is they would take the, the pagan kings and they would cut off their they would cut off their thumbs and cut off their toes. So they couldn't do very much. And what they would do is they would make them stay under their table, and when they would eat, if they dropped crumbs, that's what the, the, the kings would eat. So they were kind of like a token, a trophy, if you will, of their past battles. So that's what the pagan kings would do. But David is no pagan king, is he? And what did David do when he became king of the united Israel? And keep in mind, Saul, he didn't defeat Saul. Saul defeated Saul. God defeated Saul, right? Saul, who... David had been so kind to and served faithfully, spent the last few years of his life trying to kill David, the one man who he needed in Israel. But David doesn't know, now that he's king, if there's anyone left in Saul's family. And so David, unlike the pagan kings, he's interested in blessing Saul's house because of the covenant between he and Saul and he and Jonathan. This is kindness. And it even goes beyond anything that David has promised Saul and Jonathan. I want you to turn, or I'm just going to read some scripture here. I'll put it up on the screen. 1 Samuel 18, 1 through 3. Or that's, yeah, that's fine. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. This is, we've studied this text. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul, and Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. There's a covenant, right, between Jonathan and David. 1 Samuel 23, verse 18. Jonathan and David, they made a covenant before the Lord. David remained at Horus, and Jonathan went home. Again, speaking of the covenant that they made, and they renewed this covenant several times. Their relationship. 1 Samuel 24, this is a covenant David had made with Saul. This is the, the incident, the cave incident, when David cut off a piece of Saul's robe to prove that he could have taken Saul's life if he wanted to. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king. This is Saul speaking to David. And that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me, and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. Then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the, went up to the stronghold. And so what he had done is he, had, he was in a cave hiding from Saul, and when Saul comes in to relieve himself, he snuck up and cut off a piece of his robe. Then while Saul left the cave, David held it up to him and said, Look, Saul, why are you chasing me? Why are you trying to take my life? I'm trying to be kind to you. I've served you faithfully. But this piece of the robe shows you that I could have taken your life. My soldiers wanted me to take your life, but I didn't. 
because I, I want to serve you. And that kindness heaped burning coals on Saul's head, and this is the response from Saul. He says, I know, you're a better man than I am. I know you're going to be king. But when you become king, please don't destroy my name out of my father's house. Don't do to my descendants, to my son Jonathan, what pagan kings do to those that, that might oppose them. So we see David being kind and generous to Saul and David's house. Look in chapter 9. He asks if there's anyone left in the house of Saul. He wants to show him kindness for these, because these covenants he's made with Saul, these covenants he's made with Jonathan. We remember those if you've been studying with us. And so he asks, Zeba, a servant of Saul, do you know any of any of his kids? Does he have any relatives around? And Zeba says, yes, actually, Jonathan has a son, Mephibosheth. David said, where is he? Can you bring him to me? He says, yeah, he's crippled in his feet. He asked where he is, and he says he's in Lodabar, and he asked him to bring him to him. And so that's what Zeba did. He brought Mephibosheth to David. And you can imagine Mephibosheth, his, his fear, because typically when a king takes over, what does he do? He eradicates all the, the former king's family. Or he would cut off the thumbs and toes, right, as a token or a trophy. And so Mephibosheth comes, and what does David do? Let's look in, in verse 6. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. Look at verse 7. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, what is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? There's a loyalty David has towards Jonathan and, and even Saul. David was merciful to Mephibosheth, and why is that? It's because of how Jonathan had been merciful to David. Do you remember Jonathan? Do you remember what Jonathan did for David? Do you remember that? Jonathan was to be king if something happened to Saul. He was the son of Saul, and but Jonathan knew the Lord's will, didn't he? And he loved David. We read this as much as his own soul. That's, he loved his neighbor as himself. right? And he, knowing that he would be next in line of the throne, he gave that up. And he said, no, David, he told him several times, you're going to be king. And not only are you going to be king, I'm going to be your servant. I'm going to serve you. Amazing. And because Jonathan had been so kind to David, what does David do? And he's returning that kindness. Because he's received this blessing, this mercy, what is David going to do? He's going to be merciful to Mephibosheth. He's blessed so he can be a blessing. And so what does he promise him? He promises to take care of him. He's going to give him all the land of his father. He's going to give that back to him. And not only that, but he's going to take Zeba and all of Zeba's household, which is 30 some odd people, and he's going to bring into his own house, and he's going to sit every day at the king's table, and he's going to treat him like a son. Mephibosheth had every reason to expect the worst as he comes before David. He bows and he's humble, but instead of being mistreated, he's taken into David's house and treated like one of David's own family.
Mercy, what is mercy? Mercy is God's giving compassion to someone who does not deserve it, can never earn it, and will never repay it. You hear that? Mercy is God giving compassion to someone who does not deserve it, can never earn it, and will never repay it. Could Mephibosheth, could he repay this debt to David? Nope. That's why it's mercy, right? And what does Mephibosheth say? Who is, what is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? See, Mephibosheth had been crippled when chapter 4, verse 4 of 2 Samuel tells us when Saul and Jonathan news got back to their hometown that they had died in battle, the nurse, the caretaker of Mephibosheth, she left the house in haste, and when she, when she left, she fell, and she fell on Mephibosheth, and his feet were broken. He had an injury where he had been crippled from that point on, and he is a grown man now with his own children, but he's crippled. So what does it mean by him saying he's a dead dog? Is it referring to his, his handicap? Maybe. Or is it because of his relationship to Saul, who had been trying to take David's life? I'm not exactly sure, but it is this humility, right? David is, he approaches David, and he's humble, he pays homage, bows down before him. It reminds me of the parable in Luke 18. Do you remember the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector? And Jesus tells this parable to people who thought they were something else. They thought they were some kind of good. He says there's, a, there's two people went down to, to pray. There was a Pharisee and a tax collector. And the Pharisee says, man, I'm sure glad I'm not like all these other sorry rascals around here, especially that tax collector. And then the Pharisee began to tell him about how good he was and all the good things he had done. And Jesus, telling the story, says, but there's this tax collector, and he wouldn't even look up to heaven. All he did is beat his breast in an act of humility. And he, all he would mutter is, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Kind of sounds like Mephibosheth, doesn't it? What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Notice the humility there. David has been treated so well by Jonathan, he was given mercy. Now he wants to extend that to Jonathan's son. He was blessed so he could be a blessing to Mephibosheth. And think about us believers. We've been treated so well by the Lord, haven't we, church? We've received mercies upon mercies. Should we not be merciful to others? Remember, mercy is giving compassion to someone who does not deserve it, can never earn it, and will never repay it. Think about the Lord being merciful to us. Psalm 103, verse 8. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is merciful and gracious. Should we not emulate our Lord? Should we not emulate David these days? and extend mercy to those who don't deserve it. That's an application for us, isn't it, church? Sometimes we get frustrated with people, don't we? Maybe we're bitter, and sometimes we're wronged, we're sinned against. Sometimes, more times than not, it, we're, we don't get bitter over someone sinning against us. Sometimes we do, but sometimes it's over trivial things, aren't we? And we hold bitterness, and we, we stay upset, and it'll fester, and we just kind of hold on and... Hang on to that, don't we? Think about all that the Lord's done for us and Him extending mercy to us. Why would we not extend mercy to others? 
can't repay it. Maybe another application. Thinking back to toy. If you're a sinner and you've yet to repent, you've never turned from your sin, you've never trusted Christ's work on the cross as your own, maybe you should be like Toy who realized he couldn't defeat the Lord, so he, he couldn't defeat David, so he joined him. Maybe you should, as a sinner, stop rebelling and opposing the Lord and yield in submission, repent, and, and join up with the Lord. Lastly, maybe by way of application... Give me a second just to point out how Mephibosheth and us sinners, we have a lot in common. Think about this. How are we like Mephibosheth this morning? Well, Mephibosheth, he belonged to a a royal line, this heritage, right? But he was made a cripple by a fall. Well, we, being created in the image of God, we've fallen too, haven't we? We've sinned and rebelled against the Holy Lord. Mephibosheth, he lived in exile. He lived in Lodabar, which was an, a, a desolate, out-of-the-way place. We sinners, we've been separate, living separate from the Lord also. But Mephibosheth was sought out by the king. Now, Mephibosheth didn't go looking for David. He was afraid of David. He was staying in an obscure place, out of his way, wanting to lay low. Think about us. Romans 3 tells us we don't seek the Lord, do we as sinners? We seek the Lord. Are we here today because we sought the Lord? No. The Lord sought after us. Mephibosheth, he was brought into David's home, received this sonship, this adoption, if you will, this relationship. It's not anything that he deserved. As part of Saul's family, Mephibosheth had no claim to the kingdom, yet David treated him as a son. And God, for us, the church, he's adopted every follower of Jesus into his family. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are if you're a follower of Jesus. And Mephibosheth, he was remembered by David because of a covenant he had made with Saul and with Jonathan. Our sins have separated us from our king, King Jesus, but there exists this incredible covenant. It's called the New Covenant in Jeremiah chapter 31. I want to read part of that to you. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each teach his neighbor and each his, each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. We have rebelled against the Lord. We've been wayward. But like Mephibosheth, we have been sought out, and we've been given the given the title as sons and daughters of this wonderful king and this new covenant that we now enjoy. It's all because of mercy and it's all because of grace. David received so much mercy and grace in his life and we looked at chapter 8 and chapter 10. 
Victory after victory after victory came. Why? Because he was something? Because he was smart? Because he was a good leader? Because of the mercy of God? And we see Mephibosheth also in chapter 9 receiving the mercy of David. David extended mercy to him. Not because he earned it. Not because he deserved it. But because he had received mercy as well. Have you received the mercy of God? As we were singing this last song, Behold Our God, could you, could you sing that with honesty? Behold our God, seated on the throne, come let us adore Him. Could you really say that? Could you say it and could you feel it? Yeah, you, you could if you're a, a part of the church. If you've received the mercy of God. But maybe you're here and as you talk about these songs, you're singing these songs, but you're like, I really, I sing the words, I understand the words, but I, I, I understand them to some degree, but it doesn't resonate with me. Maybe you've never repented of your sin. Maybe you're here and you've been fighting against the Lord, fighting against the Lord. That's a, that's a no-win situation. Because Jesus is coming back. And he's coming back to, to judge sinners. And there's no hiding. There's no pretending. Because he sees all things. He knows all things. And he's going to judge sinners. Those that are separate from the Lord. Those who are obstinate, rebelling against him. So if that's you today, I'm going to, I'm going to encourage you. I'm going to plead with you. Be like Toy. who recognized he couldn't defeat David and he... Joined them. I'm going to encourage you to repent of your sin and trust Christ's work on the cross as your own and join forces with the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The Scripture tells us we confess our sin. He's faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And if you've never repented, you need to, you need to repent, confess your sin, and trust Christ today. The Bible says that Jesus lived the perfect life for us that we needed to live. And then he died the death we all must die. He was buried. He rose from the grave on the third day. Ascended into heaven. But one day he's returning to gather his church to himself. Are you a part of the church? Have you received the mercy of God? I hope that's true of you. If not, repent today. Cry out to the Lord. Ask him for forgiveness and tell him you want to live your life for his glory and for His benefit. Church, what about us? What do we do with this? My prayer for us is that we'll be merciful people. As we've received mercy from the Lord, may we be merciful to other people. Are you, you holding a grudge? Are you bitter? Are you upset about something maybe big? Whoever sinned against you, you've sinned against the Lord a lot more. A lot more heinous crimes have been committed against the Lord by you than whoever sinned against you. I guarantee you that. Maybe it's some little simple little misunderstanding. Maybe it's a little simple little something. Maybe we need to start extending mercy out to those who we've not given mercy to this week. Something to think about.
we'll pray and ask the Lord to give us grace as we leave to go and obey Him, be obedient to Him. If you've got any questions about anything that we've talked about this morning, and you'd like to talk, I would love to talk. I'm the last one to leave today. My number's in the worship guide. You can call me. I'd love to talk to you. If you're not sure if you're a believer, maybe today for the first time you start to be a little anxious about that, I'd love to talk to you and show you in the Scriptures what it says about being a Christian. Let's pray and we'll be dismissed. Father, we acknowledge you are good. We acknowledge that you are the giver of life and good gifts. We acknowledge that you're the one who saves souls. And we pray for anybody here that's yet to receive mercy from you. They've yet to be like toy and, and surrender and repent. Pray that you would open their eyes and ears to see your goodness. That they would see their sin and their need for you and they would cry out to you even today. Father, for our church family, Lord, as we live life together, Lord, help us to be merciful to one another. You've been so good to us. Lord, there's nothing that people can do that should keep us from extending mercy to them. You are so merciful. and You call us to be merciful as well. Father, for all the events taking place, this week, I just pray that you'd bless it, Lord, for those that are in the hospital, Lord, for Glenda's having a heart calf tomorrow, those who are waiting on test results, Lord, for um, shut-ins, their home, not feeling well. God, we just pray that you'd be gracious and you use us as your church to minister to our people as we should. Thank you for the visitors that are here. We know that you probably brought them here. Pray that you would encourage them as they leave. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.